right? Why don't you give him a round of applause, right? So, uh, many of you have a chance to meet Derek and his wife, Beth. Beth, where are you? She's not here. She'll be here soon, lately. Uh, where is she? There she is. Hi, Beth. You, 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 many of you have had a chance to meet Derek and Beth. Uh, I just want to remind you that when we, where we found uh, Derek was uh, in a small town in Pennsylvania uh, as a church planner. So for two and a half years, Derek preached every week to adults uh, building a church. So that's his, that's his background. And I'm excited here to have him preach uh, on Sunday uh, to, to us for the first time. Why don't you greet Derek Valencia? Great. Thanks, John. How's that? Perfect. I wouldn't, that would make sense that I'd have to be the one to give technical difficulties, right? So just doing my job. No. Um, as we get started, First, I want to say I'm excited to share. As Lloyd mentioned, I had an opportunity to share roughly every week for about two and a half years to a small but growing church in Pennsylvania, and it's been about a year since I've had a chance to share Sunday morning. I've had a chance to share with students and teens every week, which is awesome and amazing, but I've been itching to get the chance to share here on a, on a morning. So when Lloyd and Nick came to me and said, hey, would you want to share Memorial Day? Let me think about it for a second. Yes. So mm. <laughs> this morning... I'm going to share from a passage uh, that, I, that I find incredibly inspiring and encouraging and convicting, and I hope and my prayer is that it does the same thing for you today as well. We're going to take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. So if you'd like to, uh, you can turn in your Bibles there. If you have a few Bible, it's page number uh, 1855, 1855. And as you're turning, I got one disclaimer that I want to mention to you. Some of you may know that I have what I like to call a gift called Tourette's Syndrome. Now, what that means for us today is that when I get nervous and or excited, which I'm a little bit both right now, I have tics, right? And you might see some of them. So I'll have some throat things going on, and I might do some weird body stuff. So here's the thing. If you're ADD, like me, that's another gift that I get with Tourette's, you'll have an opportunity to, as long as you're listening, to count the tics that I have today. And you can tell me how many I do at the end of the service, all right? So, but you got to listen, though. That's the key. Okay. Now that we're all there, let's open up. Uh, with prayer, and I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 4 for us. Father God, we, we come to you excited to be able to, uh, to learn and to grow today. Lord, I would ask that you would speak through me today. Uh, Lord, that you would help my words to be concise and clear. Uh, Lord, that you would help my ticks to not be a distraction. Lord, that you would open up all of our hearts for those of us who are here, that you would help us to be able to focus and put our, put our brains and our minds onto what we're doing now, Lord, that we're not thinking about what we have going on this afternoon or tomorrow, um, but Lord, that we would be able and willing to hear what you want to say to us and what we desperately need to hear. Um, Lord, teach us. We want to leave here I'm closer to you, feeling invigorated and renewed to live out our faith this week. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. So as we get started, let's go ahead and read. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. And in this passage, Paul is writing, Paul is speaking. It says this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who would judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. 
But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist, discharge all of the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now imagine with me, if you will, as we get started this morning, that you are an inmate. That you're an inmate in a maximum security prison. You know, my, my dad works at a maximum security prison in Pennsylvania. And he tells me stories about how those who are deemed the highest risk to themselves, to other inmates, or to officers, and or those who are known inmates. You know, political people, like a Bernie Madoff, if he was there, he'd be in this situation. Imagine you're an inmate that's in this type of situation. You are, you are a known person. So you are chained to your wrists by handcuffs, but also to your waist, like the picture describes there. Also to your, to your uh, ankles as well. You are in high security. Imagine that's you, and imagine that your days are being lived out in a cell like this. Nice little cozy room there, right? Imagine that you're there 24-7. You can't leave. You can't escape. People can bring you some food. They can bring you some books to read, some things to write, but you're there 24-7. Now imagine that you're there because you know that a corrupt judge has condemned you. He's the one that's, that's put you there, that's ordered you to be there, and he's about to condemn you to death. Imagine that it's a guy kind of like this. You know that he's not just and that he's not right, and you know that because he's corrupt, he's about to condemn you to death. And you're going to be laid on this nice little bed, and your life is going to be extinguished. Imagine that. That's the exact situation that we find Paul in as we look at 2 Timothy chapter 4 here. You see, this, this letter that he writes to Timothy is one of the last things that he's ever written in his life, possibly the last thing, and it's the last thing that we have recorded. It's the final words that he has for his protege, his mentoree, his son in the faith as he himself describes him, Timothy. These are the last things he's ever going to say to him, and he, he even mentions here um, that he through the context of the text that he's, he's not sure if he's ever going to see him again. If you, read the, if you read the whole book, you'll see that he does tell Timothy to grab his, his cloak and to grab some scrolls or some books to bring to him, but he's not sure that Timothy's going to get there in time before he dies. So these are the final things that he says, and chapter 4 are the final words of the final words that he says to Timothy. So these are, these are well-chosen words by Paul. These are precisely chosen. I can imagine... Timothy getting this letter and then taking it around with him. So when the times come later on in his life when he's dealing with, with wanting to just, just cut and run, when he's dealing with, with rejection, with, with persecution, that he'll pull out this letter from Paul, he'll read it again, and he'll find inspiration and encouragement from it. That's the, that's the, the vein in which Paul is writing this letter. And as he writes it, I think what he, he shows Timothy is this. He shows Timothy that he's tempted to go one route, but he can't go that route. He can't live that way. And he then challenges and commands Timothy to go another route. If we can put it into one sentence, it'd be kind of like this. Timothy is, is, is tempted to scratch the itch now or to scratch the itch of others now. But Paul is telling him, commanding him to not do that, to go a different route where he will be able to reap rewards later on. There's a, there's a pleasure now aspect to it or a reward and pleasure later on. He's commanding Timothy to live in the latter, latter way. I find this passage really encouraging because 
I think we have the same tendencies, the same temptations, we have the same desires that Timothy would have had in his day to kind of jet and run at times. You see, we, we don't want to to listen to truth. We don't want to, to, to be challenged, right? We want things to be easy. Our temptations are similar to Timothy's. So my hope and my prayer is that we will be able to find immense encouragement today, that we will be reinvigorated, renewed in our faith to be able to live the life that God has called us and enabled us to live if we're Christians this week. So, as we get started, I want to do this. Um, if you're ADD, then you're going to love me this morning. If you're not, that's okay. The Holy Spirit's still going to speak, so, you know, it's all good, right? What we're going to do is, is jump around a little bit. I'm going to start in verses 3 and 4. We're going to look at this part of the passage first, talk about the temptations that Timothy faced, that we face, and then we're going to bounce to verses 1 and 2 and 5, and then we're going to finish by looking at verses 6 and 8. So, it's going to be awesome. Now, as we go roll, I want to read verses 3 and 4 for us again. At this, uh, Paul says, For the time will come when people will not put up a sound doctrine, but instead to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul talks about how there is this day coming when people are going to do this, but in reality, the day had already dawned in Paul's ministry. He had already began to deal with stuff, but, but he knew that in Timothy's ministry, it was going to get worse. See, Paul was dealing with an early, for, early her heresy, an early form of a heresy called Gnosticism. It was a brutal heresy, and really, it, what, what it ended up doing was getting rid of all of the core tenets and doctrines of our faith. Gnostic doctrine would believe there, there's a lot to it. We could spend an entire Sunday class on it, but, but the gist of it is this, that Gnostic would believe that matter, all matter, physical matter, our bodies, everything we see is bad, evil. It was created by this kind of lesser evil God, and, and the true God, the loving God, the one right God is a different God, separate, and our souls are attached to that God. Many Gnostics would believe that our, our souls are the real us and that they are freed from the, from the bondage or the imprisonment of our body when we die, and that the two are not compatible. The physical us and the spiritual us are not the compatible. We're actually kind of two different things. Now, this would lead to some pretty nasty things. One, many of them, most of them, in fact, I think I can say all of them, would deny the divinity of Jesus Christ. It's not a good thing. But another thing that would happen is many Gnostics would believe that since our bodies are completely separated from our, our real us, the soul, that sin didn't really matter. The body was so corrupt that you can kind of do what you felt like, did whatever you wanted to do because it had no impact on, on the real you, which was the soul. Now, this led to some, some interesting developments in the early church because, as you would imagine, Gnostics, those that would hold to early forms of Gnosticism, would avoid some of the persecutions that those in the early church would, would be hit with. I mean, if, if, if I'm part of a church and I'm abstaining, abstaining with the rest of the group from some things that my community thinks are, are okay but I deem as sinful, that's not going to be treated too well, right? People are not going to like me. People are not going to look at me. The Romans are going, what are these guys doing over here, right? They're not part of this persecution starts. But the Gnostics were like, ah, no big deal. We can jump right in. So they avoided persecutions. It was, it was an easy, easy thing to do. And what Paul is writing at here in verses 3 and 4 is this idea that people are going to turn aside to this because it's easier in some ways. 
Right? They're going to tickle the ears of those who want to be tickled, and in the same way, they are going to be affirmed by those that they're teaching. So what you end up having is this big, giant kind of love fest, but the, the hard part is that it's not true. The truth isn't going out. Your truth convicts, doesn't it? Right? It's, it's hard sometimes. We don't really want to hear it sometimes, but we need to hear it sometimes. Let's just do an example real quick. Timothy, what, what do you think would have been easier for Timothy to teach? Truth, something like this. This is Matthew, it's not up there, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 26. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Would it be more difficult for Timothy to teach that or something like this? Gnostics believe in finding their own truth and don't believe in hell or sin or that Jesus came to die for our sins, but was a human Messiah who served as a living example of how we should think and how we should behave. Church members believe in an all-loving, all-merciful, and benevolent God in the power of prayer and that we write a chart for each life to learn the life lessons that we have chosen to learn through experience to reach our own desired level of perfection for God, who loves us unconditionally and equally. Now that statement there is part of the doctrine statement of a group called Novus Spiritus. It's actually a modern-day Gnostic church that was founded in 1986 in California. Now I don't think it takes too much effort to realize that the easier thing to teach in some ways would be the latter here, right? The harder thing to teach would be the truth, which cuts and convicts, which is what we see um, in the Matthew passage. You know, in April, I finished a, a class, uh, part of the Treads, uh, Treads, Ted's Trinity Extension site here. It's a church history class, and my final paper was this big research paper that I, that I, I accomplished. And I passed the class, I passed the paper, so that's good. But the, the professor that I had was a professor who wants to make sure that you can improve as much as you can. So she would write every single spot that I could improve, every single spot that I had a spelling error, a grammar error, that I had a phrase issue, everything was on this page. So only those of you in the first row, I bet, could read it. If you can read this in the back row, then you got amazing eyes, and I want them because my eyes are horrible. But needless to say, you can understand that there's a ton of green ink on this page all over the place, right? It's a funny thing because... Uh, my wife was telling me that the reason teachers use green ink instead of red is because red ink causes anxiety for students, as if like the ink matters, you know, so now the green ink gives me anxiety. But, but the point is, the point is, there was a lot of correction and rebuke in this paper. Now once I saw that I passed the, the class, the first thing that I wanted to do was throw this thing in the trash. I wanted to burn it, I wanted to bury it, I wanted to get rid of it because I do not like to be corrected or rebuked. I don't want to be shown truth that I spelled this word wrong or that I did that wrong or that I didn't parse this thing. I don't want to be shown truth. I just want to be affirmed. I want to be told I'm okay how I am. I want to be told that I said something to the professor that she had never heard before, that I blew her mind with how awesome I am and my grasp of church history, right? And the truth is, I think every single one of us is in the same boat, right? All of us would rather be affirmed and justified in how we are and who we are right now. We don't want to be taught truth. We don't want to know truth. We would rather have our ears tickled. Just say some nice warm fuzzies. We don't want to be told that 
that we can grow, that this is wrong, that this is right. We don't like that. You know, we don't want to be told that, that our addiction to pornography is an addiction to pornography. We don't want to be told that our problem with gossip is a problem with gossip. We want to be told that it's just something that we like to talk about, just, you know, we're sharing prayer requests or something like that, right? We don't want to be told that, that by, by burdening our children with activity after activity after activity on top of the new burdens that are on school, that we are, that we are causing them to have anxiety at higher levels than ever before in recorded history for the last hundred years or so that we've recorded anxiety levels in students. We don't want to be told that maybe we're trying to live our lives vicariously through them by doing this. We want to be told that we're giving them opportunities that we haven't had in our life. We don't want to be told that it's wrong for us to not seek to mentor younger generations if we are in that oldest generation bracket. We want to be told that it's okay that we don't pour into them because after, our, after all, my day is totally different than the day of today, right? The world's so different. But the reality is that you have experience and wisdom that the younger generations desperately need. But we'd rather be affirmed that we're okay just checking out early and just doing our own thing as we coast through life. You know, we want to be told that, that our suburban ideals of seeking safety and comfort and security above all other things is good. It's what God wants. It's what God desires for us. And, and after all, that's, that's what we shoot for in life. We want to be told that seeking those things above all other things is right. But you know, I, I'm pretty sure the Bible says some things otherwise. In fact, let me, let me share just two quick stories of some, some things that helped me to begin to change my mind in that. About how, how do I live as a Christian in suburban America? What, how, how, how does it look for me? The first is a, is a story from a guy named Francis Chan. Maybe you've heard of him. He's a pastor, and he's, he's written a couple books. But I remember watching this video one time about how he was convicted one day about how he used his house. He realized that around the world, people live in conditions like, like the house that he lives, you know, extended families in that house, 10, 20, 30 people in the size of a space that he would have five or six people in it. And he realized that God has given him this gift to use for God's glory, so he started to open up his doors, and he allowed some people from, the, from his church to come in to live with, live with him, some homeless folks who were new Christians who needed to get back on their feet, a single mom who was barely able to pay rent. And he realized that God had given him this gift to use. The truth is, we have space to be used by God. The lie that we want to believe is that this is designed merely and solely for us, for our comfort, for our safety, for our security, to be used by us and us alone. Another story, this one is a more personal one. Before Beth and I moved to my hometown in Pennsylvania, we were in her hometown area in a town called Pottstown, and we were part of a church there. And at that church, we to meet this woman who was recently retired, 65 years old. Her husband had died a couple of years beforehand, and she was widowed. I think he died of cancer. And now at 65, she realized that she had retirement to live on, and she had the life insurance from her husband coming in to live on. And she realized she had a unique thing. She would be able to go overseas and to serve as a missionary without having to raise support. So she made a, a, a deserted decision to, to see where God wanted to use her. And she ended up going to Cambodia to work with women, to work with a church plant there at the age of 65. And she said that she's going to do it until her body or her brain couldn't handle it anymore. And they have to take her back, you know, kicking and screaming and dragging. 
I was amazed by that. Here's a woman who, who, who couldn't wait to put money into her 401k, who couldn't wait to do this because she knew that she had a unique ministry opportunity in the later years of her life that we don't have in other, other periods of our life. Is our retirement used solely for us to be snowbirds in Florida or Texas? Or do we see it as a unique ministry opportunity that we have a freedom to serve, to love, to speak and live truth to people in a way unlike before? You know, our temptations are Timothy's temptations. We want people to tell us that we're okay, to affirm that, that we're okay just kind of skirting by and living life as is. We want to we believe in, in the lies that the American ideals, the American dream is really what God wants for us. But the truth is that we're called to another way. The truth is that, that the scriptures are clear that we are called to, to stick our neck out for Jesus and, and loving him and sharing the gospel with others and living out the gospel in our lives. It requires risk and hardship. Let's take a look here at verses 1 and 2 and then again verse 5, what, what Paul uh, commands Timothy to do. Paul says this, he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. With great patience and careful instruction. In this passage, Paul is telling Timothy that he's going to give him a challenge. Now, where does the authority come from in this challenge? It doesn't come from just him himself. It comes from a higher authority, the highest authority from Jesus Christ himself. It's with that authority that he gives Timothy this challenge to pursue the ministry that God has called him to. For, for Timothy, it was to preach and to teach. Some scholars believe that Timothy was, was next in line to kind of fulfill Paul's role in the early church. Timothy, we, we think, were, was uh, in charge of a region of churches in Ephesus. And some think that when Paul died, that Timothy was next in line to kind of be an overseer of all of the churches that Paul had helped to plant or to start or to minister to. So Paul's giving him this challenge to, to under the authority of Jesus Christ, preach and teach the truth. Not myths, not lies that are going to get people to clap for you and say amen, but the truth that may hurt, that may convict, that may cause people to turn away. Preach it, Timothy. And in verse 5, he says that, that to, he needs to do this even when, even when things aren't going necessarily so well. When times are tough, when, when hardships come, he's supposed to endure it in his ministry. Now, we know that Timothy had a distinct ministry, and sometimes we can think, well, you know, Timothy had this kind of like rock star role in the early church, so clearly he was called to some hardships that I'm definitely not called to. Well, unfortunately, we get to look at a passage like in Matthew chapter, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, that, as much as we don't like it, tells us differently. Jesus is talking here, and he says this to his disciples. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Folks, this is something that Jesus said to his disciples, and we are disciples of his disciples. It goes down the line, right? So these are words for us. The point is, every single one of us here has a ministry to fulfill. It's probably not going to be to preach and teach. For 99% of us, that's not it. But we all have a ministry to fulfill. 
Don't believe the lie otherwise. You know, we've been given the keys to the kingdom, right? If, if we are a Christian here today, if we, if, we, if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, that is that we have, we have repented from our sins, we have, we've understood that we are sinners, and then that is a big deal because it separates us from God, and we've repented from that, understanding that Jesus and Jesus alone was the one who was able to act as a substitution for my sins, so that my sins aren't simply just done away with, but that Jesus took them onto him. Because of that, I am now clean and pure, a new creation, in God's eyes. And because of that, I have the Holy Spirit now indwelling me. If that is us, we are a Christian. We need to understand that we've been given the keys to the kingdom. God has saved us. He's redeemed us. He has broken us free from those chains of sin, not so that we can just hold on to this ourselves, put this key in a nice mantle in our house, but so that we can give it freely to anybody and everybody who wants it, who asks for it. You see, we are called to live our lives as, as cities on a hill, as lights in a dark room. We are called to be the instruments of truth, the means by which God's grace goes forth. Right? The Holy Spirit does the work. He does the convicting of the hearts. But it's through us that he's chosen to do this. I don't understand why or how. I would think that God would have much more efficient ways of getting his gospel out there. But for whatever reason, he's chosen to use us to be the instruments by which the, the truth, the message has gone out in words and in deeds. We can't believe any lies otherwise. Now, I believe that God has a ministry for every single one of us in the corner of the world that we inhibit, in your workplace, in your communities, in your schools. There's a reason why God has placed us where he has for the time being, and it's primarily to be a light to those who desperately need it. What that looks like for you, I, I don't know. You can spend time with God on that one, and he'll show you pretty quickly. I'm pretty sure of that. But one thing we need to know, just in case we want to go this, this route, you know, we could think that, that Timothy was told to endure hardship in his ministry. Maybe that's not going to be the case for us. Well, unfortunately, we have Matthew 5, verses 11 and 2 which comes right before what we just read. Jesus says this to his disciples. He said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul reiterates the same message as Timothy, right? Endure hardship, do the work that God has called you to do no matter what. The, the, the truth is, as much as we don't want to believe it, the truth is, is that hardship and suffering and sacrifice and persecution is a part of the gig. If we call ourselves Christians, we have, we have this message that we need to, to, to give to others by how we live, by how we speak. Hardships are going to happen. It's going to come. It's a part of the gig. We, we want to believe that there's some way that we can live this out with, without having to stick our necks out on the line, being safe and secure. But, but the truth is, it doesn't happen. Now, I'm convinced that if we seek to, to, to speak the truth and to live the truth in our lives, however that may look for us, that two things are going to happen. One is that people will come to know the Lord like crazy. It will be awesome. It will be beautiful. We will see people repent of their sins. People will have their lives transformed. People who have been dealing with lust and anger and greed and, and rage issues will be, it will be ripped out of them, and they will become a new person in Jesus Christ, and we will rejoice with them with that. It will be amazing. But with equal fervor and with equal passion, people will reject God and they will reject you as they reject God. We can't have one without the other. As much as we want to believe otherwise, we can't. 
Boldness, courage brings those two things. Now, if I just ended there, it would be kind of like, oh, that's great. Woo-hoo. I'm so glad that we have Paul's final words in verses 6 through 8. This is, in some ways, his, his final hurrah for Timothy, the final thing that he wants to say to him, like the piece of information that he wants Timothy to cherish with him forever for the rest of Timothy's life. And it's this that we read in verses 6 through 8 in 2 Timothy. Paul says this, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, and I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You know, if there was anybody, anybody who had the right, who had an opportunity to say something like, Timothy, I endured much pain and hardship throughout my life, and it was a waste of my time, man. Dude, I was totally wrong. Now that I'm at the end of my life, I'm about to be beheaded in like a couple of days, I'm realizing I blew it. Timothy, just enjoy life, man. You only live once. Eat, drink, and be merry, you know, like YOLO, right? Like, enjoy it, man. If anybody had the right to say that, it would have been Paul, right? Paul was a man who, who trained under Gamaliel, who was arguably one of the, if not the greatest Jewish scholars of his day. He was on track to become a man who would have had much prestige, much respect, much honor in his society. He would have had much wealth in his society. He would have had an easy life. Yet, he had this encounter with Jesus on the road to a city called Damascus, which changed his life. And from that point on, his life took on a different path, a path that primarily consisted of beatings, stonings, persecutions, house arrest, imprisonment now in a dank, dark jail cell, awaiting to die by execution. Not in a nice, cozy bed, waiting to die in his sleep, but by execution. If anybody had a right, had a reason, to tell Timothy to back off, to abort mission, to go another way, it would have been him. But he didn't say that. It seems in the text here that Paul is as sure now as he's ever been that the way that he lived was entirely worth it. That he would go through it all again in a heartbeat. Because he knows that the rewards for him are going to be beyond this life, in heaven, in eternity. He knows that Jesus Christ is going to, to award him with the crown of righteousness. It's this, it's this picture of a runner running a race, winning a race in Greek terms, and having the governor or the emperor give this, this crown, this, this wreath onto your head. It's a beautiful picture. And what he's saying is, Timothy, now that I'm at the end, I'm looking back on it, I want you to know that I am excited to be with Jesus. I am excited that as I look back, I have no regrets, that I continue to press on, that I endure hardships even when I didn't want to. That when I wanted to pack it in, throw in the towel, I didn't. Timothy, I am so glad that this has happened to me. And know, and know that it can be your story as well. Now, this leads me to think one more thing, just one more lie, one more myth that we tend to believe in our society, and that is this, is that we tend to think that we will never get old. Like, I don't know if any other, maybe there's some historians here, I don't know, correct me later if I'm wrong, but I don't know if any other culture in history that would go through such torturous extents of, like, putting needles in your face and stretching your skin and, like, all this weird stuff to make ourselves look young so that when we look in the mirror, we can say, oh, I'm not old. I'm young. I got no wrinkles yet, right? I don't know anybody, any other, any other society that's ever done that. 
We go through, through so much trouble to make ourselves believe that we're young, that we always have more time, that death is not going to happen to us. And it's a lie. You see, Paul's situation here reminds us of, of the opposite, right? It reminds us otherwise. I mean, what's, don't answer this out loud, but in your head rhetorically, what is the death rate of Madison? What's the death rate of Dane County? It's 100%. Unless Jesus comes back, we're all going to die. It's going to happen to every single one of us. And I got a feeling those of us at the, at the later ends of our life may, may understand this more than those of us who are younger yet. But, but we know that it's going to come like a blink of an eye. It's like we're born, we grow up, and oh, well, our life's done. Wow, that happened pretty quick, right? It's going to happen quickly. We only have one life to live. My hope is that... We can look to Paul for inspiration here. Here is a man who endured much for the sake of the gospel, and at the end of his life is sitting peacefully, knowing that it was all worth it, challenging his protege to do the same. My challenge for you is that we would do the same as well, that we would, that we would understand that we have the ability, because the Holy Spirit has indwelled us, to live a life in which grace and truth flows from us in what we do and how we speak. It's not that we're perfect. But the God's grace goes through us, and that truth becomes the key part of our life. And as a result, people come to the Lord through, through that. I just want to share one last story as we close. Um, growing up, I knew this guy, you know, a small town in Pennsylvania. We, we kind of ran in the same circles because we were in the same class in high school and elementary school. But I was never close to him because this guy, honestly, was a bonehead. He was an idiot. And I never wanted to associate with him. Now, I knew that his family was a mess, that his parents were divorced, and, and that he was raised primarily by his grandparents. And an effort to kind of keep him at bay, they just threw money at him. Like, he was one of those guys that, at the age of 16, got his first car, and it was a bright yellow, brand-new Camaro. Like, yeah, I was so jealous, right? But, but he, was, he wasn't the, the greatest guy to be around. You know, foul, just kind of abrasive, just kind of dumb at times. And he took stupid risks at times in his life as well. So high school went, you know, went through, and I, I became a Christian when I was a junior. Junior year, senior year, didn't once seek to share the gospel with him. Didn't once seek to try to live out truth in a gracious way with him, to show him you know, that God loves him as I'm trying to love him in that way. Went to college, lost touch a little bit, but we connected every once in a while because our families both ran in a fire company together there. So I would see him at Christmas banquets and stuff, and the same thing. Moved back to my hometown area to, to start the work that God had for us there, and three months later, I get a call from my mom, Derek. Sean just died in a motorcycle accident. Apparently he was driving like 125 miles per hour, didn't take a turn, and like wrapped around a tree, and it was it. 24 years old. Now, I remember going to this guy's funeral seeing some friends that I hadn't seen for, for years for the first time again. I remember looking at his, his casket. It was a closed casket because his body was a wreck. I remember thinking to myself, how dare I? Like, why in the world would I not take the chance to, to not even just speak truth, but to live it to him? I, I tried to avoid this guy because I wanted to have a certain reputation and be respected in a certain way. I made a concerted effort on that day 
that that was going to be the last regret that I was going to face the rest of my life. As long as God gives me life, many years. So, so whenever I get to look back in my life, I'll get to look back and say, hey, when I was 24 years old, the last regret that I have about not speaking truth and living truth, about not enduring hardship, about not taking the risk that God has called me to take was when I was 24 and I didn't seek to live out or share the gospel with my friend Sean. I made a concerted effort that day to, to not believe the lie that I can justify my lack of action with him because God probably had other people in his life. The fact is, I was in his life and I had an opportunity to share this with him and I didn't. I made an effort to say that I was never again going to try to affirm myself by saying that I was too young in my faith, that I didn't know what to say or how to say it. The fact is, I had an opportunity to live the truth and speak the truth to this guy, and I didn't. I don't know if God had other people in his life or not, but I do know that God has commanded me, as he's commanded all of us, to live a life of truth, to live the gospel out in our lives, to pursue the ministry that he's called for us so that people will come to him and know him and love him as a result. My hope is that as I look back on my life, at the end of it, whenever that comes, that I will truly be able to say that I have ran the race, I have fought the fight, and I have finished it well. My hope is that as we look through First Timothy or Second Timothy chapter four, that you will all be inspired to do the same. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're dealing with. But let's leave with this. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is with you and indwelling you. And that means you have the strength to, to live the way that God has called you to live. It means that you're going to have to endure some things. I don't know what it is for you. You do. But it means that you have the ability Trust that God is bigger than any of the hardships that you will endure. Trust that the peace and the joy that he will give you is bigger and better and greater than any of the, uh, the rejections that you will face in life. And trust that by sticking your neck out on the line and living for Jesus, the people will come to know him and come to love him, and their lives will be changed and transformed as a result. Let's pray as we close. Father, you know us better than we know ourselves. You know that our temptations are the same as Timothy, Lord, that we want to have our ears itched, that we don't want to know truth, we don't want to be, be spoken into by truth, and that we want to be affirmed in, in living how we are. But Lord, we know that we can't live that way, Lord. So we ask that you would convict us as we take time this afternoon, tomorrow, uh, to spend with family, that we would take some time by ourselves, Lord. Show us the areas in our life where we need to, to grow, to, to be willing to pursue the ministry that you've called for us, to stick our necks out in the line for your sake, not in judgmentalism or arrogance, but for your sake, humbly, Lord. We know that you give us the strength to do that. Help us to remember that, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen.